Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. Today's episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights is proudly brought to you by Lightstream, Euphoric, Pretty Litter, and Chilling Tales' very own 2019 Evil Idol competition. Our fourth annual horror voice acting competition going on now exclusively on our YouTube channel. I'll be back after each of our first three stories tonight to share a bit more information about each of our sponsors with you, including some special offers they have for those of you listening in this evening. Until then, settle in, get cozy, and prepare to be unsettled. The show is about to begin. (laughs) It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality. Descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations. With audio adaptations of four rounds of frightening fiction about perilous parades, unnerving entities, cryptic corpses, 
and carnivorous creatures. I'm Otis Gyrie, host of Scary Stories Told in the Dark podcast, now in its fourth season, with a fifth soon on the way. My show's available on iTunes and wherever podcasts can be found. And tonight I'll be filling in as host on behalf of my friend Steve Taylor and your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your wildest imaginations. Joining us tonight to help bring our frightening fiction to life are voice talents Charles Watley, Kristen Mass, John Rogers, and Kyle Stroud, all of them top performing contestants in Chilling Tales for Dark Nights 2019 Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition. If you enjoy their performances tonight, visit our YouTube channel and vote on theirs and other entries in the competition. The first round started in early October and runs through mid-December, so there are several more competitors and amazing stories yet to come. Again, you can find CTFDN and the Evil Idol competition on YouTube. Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation bar to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all of their performances thus far. We and the candidates appreciate your support. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds. Brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights. Turn on the dark. <laughs> Our first tale tonight, from author Gabby Rivera, is voiced by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 25, Charles Watley. In it, a young man recounts the time he and a childhood friend conspired to spy on an infamous parade in their small town, which they were warned never to look at. But what will happen if they do? Listen in and find out. Without further ado, I present to you the Point Pine Parade. I lived in Arizona for the past 15 years of my life, but I had a very different life before that. I used to live in a small town in the middle of nowhere. I couldn't even tell you what side of the country it's on or if it even is in the United States. It was a small forest town with dense trees in all directions, but where exactly this particular forest is, well, your guess is as good as mine. The only thing I know for certain is the name of the town, Point Pine. I lived in Point Pine for the first ten years of my life, before we moved the summer after my tenth birthday. Once we left, my parents never spoke of it again. In fact... They acted as if it never even existed, and to them, I guess it didn't. I don't really blame them either. I caught on pretty quickly and realized that they were trying their hardest to forget the memory of Point Pine. Whenever kids at school asked me where I was from, I simply told them I was from a small town that they had never heard of. I also learned early on that any questions about Point Pine would be met with punishments. 
A few months after we moved to Arizona, my older sister Felicity had a school project about family history. She did it on our life in Point Pine and wrote about some of the things she remembered from there. Our mom found out about her project the day before she turned it in and burned it in the backyard. When Felicity came home that afternoon, my parents took her up to her bedroom where I heard Felicity crying out every few minutes in what I assume was pain. I said nothing. And from that moment on, neither one of us mentioned Point Pine again. Except for me, right now. I've decided to tell you all about it. I don't know what is causing me to remember all these things that I had locked up in the deepest parts of my brain. Maybe it's the fact that my father died about a week ago. Since he died, my mom has remained silent. Hasn't said a word to anyone. She hasn't even cried. In fact, she ended up sending my father's remains off to God knows where. My money is on Point Pine, although I'd be crazy to ask. I've started recalling random things about the town that, at the time, seemed like normal, everyday things that we as residents were all used to. Now, as I look back, I realize that they're not as normal as I thought back then. One peculiar thing about Point Pine had to do with the Point Pine Bakery. Whenever you went in there, the owner, Mr. Terrence, always knew what you were about to order. I remember the kids having some sort of rumor about Mr. Terrence being a magician who could read minds. Also, whenever you paid for your baked goods, you had to tip Mr. Terrence with an old item of clothing that you had grown out of. There was a giant box by the register that everyone tossed old baby clothes and shoes into. That was one of the odd things. Although you'll come to realize that it won't seem that weird in comparison to some of the other things about Point Pine. Every year on your birthday, you had to get blood work done. I don't think anyone really knew what the point of this was or if they were actually looking for something. We just all knew that our birthdays would start off with a trip to the Point Pine Labs. Everyone had to be up at 8.13am. There was a system of speakers placed around the town like an amusement park or something, and at 8.13am, without fail, the wailing alarm sound would ricochet through the neighborhoods, waking everybody up. This was followed by parents running to wake up their children and get them out of bed as quickly as possible like the house was on fire or something. Sometimes I expected it to be. All the Point Pine schools were placed in different areas of the town. Point Pine Elementary was towards the east side. Point Pine Middle School was in the west. Point Pine High was in the dead center of town. And Point Pine University was up on a small hill towards the south. If you haven't noticed by now, every place in town was named Point Pine blank. The Point Pine Cafe, Point Pine Mall, Point Pine Grocery, etc., etc., Certainly, one of the weirdest things by far that took place in Point Pine was the Point Pine Monthly Parade. It happened every month, without fail. It was never on the same date, and each month, a student from Point Pine High was chosen to be in it. The weird thing about this parade was that we weren't allowed to watch it go by. Not out on the streets, not from the windows, and not even on television. That was one of the most enforced rules. You must never, under any circumstance, look at the parade. In fact, for the most part, we weren't even allowed outside when the parade passed through. 
We always knew when the parade was about to start because it always happened the same way. You would hear a chorus of voices like a church choir singing a melody. It wasn't a familiar one that I knew. I was only familiar with it in the sense that I had heard it once a month. It sounded like it could be from a nursery rhyme or something similar. The voices seemed to come from everywhere and nowhere all at once. It was like they were coming from the sky, the ground, the trees, the buildings. Like everything in Point Pine was singing. Once you heard the first note, you had five minutes to get inside a house or a building that had locks on the doors. This might come as a surprise, but in Point Pine, not many buildings contain locks. So, if you happened to be out and about on the street when the singing started, you had about three options on places you could go. One was the schools, the staff break room in the Point Pine bar, or the fridge in the Point Pine pizza shop. One year in the month of August, my friend Lee and I decided that we were going to break the rules and not go inside when the parade passed. Now that I think about it, I'm surprised that kids didn't do this more often, considering that, well, when you tell kids they must absolutely never do something, they often do that exact thing. Since we didn't know when the parade was coming, where it started, or the exact path that it took around town, we decided the smartest thing to do would be to wait in the forest near the Point Pine Library until the parade eventually came down that street. So, we basically decided to spend about half of the month of August hanging out near or around the library. Around the third week of the month, while we were sitting on the steps of the library talking about some random things that aren't important, we heard the music start. Lee and I looked at each other, and then we took off running into the trees while everyone raced to the nearest school. We went far enough into the forest that someone on the street wouldn't see us, but stayed close enough so that we were still able to see a part of the road. We waited for a while, whispering to each other and then hushing one another as we waited for the infamous parade to pass. This year, my sister's friend Reed was chosen to work on the parade. She was a few years older than my sister, but they were friends because Reed used to live next door to us when we were younger. We were crouching in the bushes and leaves when we heard the chorus of voices getting louder and therefore closer. Dude, I can totally see it, Lee hissed. I straightened my back a little bit in my crouched position to try to see what Lee was seeing. I was always a short kid. Even now, I'm shorter than most guys my age, or any age really. So, Lee always pretty much towered over me. I can't see anything, I hissed, shifting my position. Shh, they might hear us, Lee hissed. I stopped moving and instead waited for them to get closer, where they were bound to pass right in front of my line of sight. Oh no. Oh crap! Suddenly, Lee dove to the ground, landing in the fetal position with his head cradled in his hands. What? I asked, looking from him to the street. I saw her. I saw that girl, he exclaimed. Reed? I asked, looking over to try to spot her. Lee grabbed me and slammed me down to the ground. How? I exclaimed. What was that for? I asked. You don't want to look at it, Lee replied. I noticed that for the first time in all the years that I had known him, Lee looked absolutely terrified. I turned my back on the parade and sat down to look at Lee instead. What did you see? I whispered. Those things. They, they did something to her. They're eating her, Cody. But she doesn't even care. I looked at Lee, who still had his head in his hands. And he was crying now. 
I sat with my back to the parade, no longer wanting to see. I heard the singing get louder. Cody. I heard the voices calling. Don't look, Lee whispered. Cody. Cody. Now the voices sounded like Reed. Look at us, Cody. I shut my eyes. The voices went on for a few minutes longer, and at one point, Lee started wailing. I kept my eyes shut the entire time. And after that, it moved along and continued its way through the town. Once we began to hear everyone come out of their hiding places, I stood up and leaned down to help Lee get up. Once he stood up, kept his head down. Lee? What's wrong? I could hear him sniffling. Lee? He finally responded as he lifted his head. It took my eyes. I will never forget the dark, bleeding holes in Lee's face and the cuts around his skin. I threw up in the forest for a good three minutes before I was able to help Lee out of the forest. A few adults saw us and got our parents, who came and got us right away. The day after that... My family moved out of Point Pine. I never knew what became of Lee after that day. Minutes after we left, my parents acted like Point Pine never existed. It was never discussed, and I never had the nerve to ask about Lee again. As far as I know, Lee was the only person who ever saw the parade, and he was never able to see anything else after that. I don't know if Point Pine still exists. I'd like to go check it out again, but even if I knew where it was or how to get there, I don't think I'd ever go back. I have a feeling that I wouldn't exactly get a warm welcome. Although I can't shake the thought that my parents were somehow still connected to the town, even after all those years... I hope you enjoyed the Point Pine Parade, as written by Gabby Rivera and performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 25, Charles Watley. Up next, we've got another tale for you, this one courtesy of an author who prefers to be known only by the moniker SSA89 about the case that drove an inexperienced paranormal investigator to look for a new line of work. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's first sponsor, Lightstream. You know, it feels great. Paying off high-interest credit cards, getting a lower rate, saving money. Refinance your credit card balances and save with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. You can get a rate as low as 5.95% APR with AutoPay, much lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 20% APR. You can get a loan from 5000 to 100000 with no fees. And there are no application fees, no origination fees, no transaction fees, and no prepayment penalties either. The online application is quick and easy. You can apply right from your phone. Plus, 
You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that when you have good credit, you deserve a low rate and great service, and that's exactly what they deliver. If you or someone you know is being kept up at night, not by the threat of what's lurking under your bed, but by the balance of your credit cards, or worse, by interest rates in the double digits, <laughs> and if you wouldn't mind getting the specter of debt off your backs, why not start by paying less interest on your credit card balances right now with Lightstream? If you've ever been in dire straits financially, and who hasn't at one point or another, Lord knows I've been there myself at one point, Lightstream can help you too, like they've helped countless others. Just for my listeners, apply now to get an additional interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash chilling. That's lightstream.com slash chilling for an additional discount. L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash chilling. Subject to credit approval. Rates include 0.5% auto pay discount, terms and conditions apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash chilling for more information. Thanks so much for your time and for giving Lightstream a try this month. Now that I've done my part to help you sleep a bit easier when it comes to financial concerns, I feel more comfortable ruining the rest of your night with yet another heaping helping of horror. In our second tale tonight, from author SSA89, as performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 13, Kristen Mass, a paranormal investigator tells us all about one of the worst cases she's ever had the misfortune of investigating. Or maybe it's the best case. <laughs> it depends on what you're looking for, I suppose and whether you mind if it starts looking for you. Without further ado, I present to you The Grinning Man. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot I have worked as a paranormal investigator for close to 30 years. I always had believed there was more to our world than what most think. 
Like the submerged section of an iceberg, there is something under our choppy waters of regular existence. I suppose there is little other reason to take this job other than that belief. It certainly isn't for the money or respect. But I would be lying if I said my early years in this profession didn't test my faith in the existence of the paranormal world. For the first four years of my work, I found nothing. No evidence of even a single paranormal phenomenon in any of the cases I took. There were hordes of unconfirmed ghost sightings, hauntings that were explained away by natural phenomenon, and even the odd prankster or two. I felt like I was floundering. I started to wonder if I had followed a road that led nowhere, my destination nothing but a hazy mirage perpetually on the horizon. That was until I took a case in 1997, my most haunting case still to this day. The Case of the Grinning Man Do you mind if I record this interview? I asked. No, that's okay, Audrey said. We were in the living room of her small home. Audrey sat on the sofa across from me, a 35-year-old woman that looked closer to 50. She was small, hunched over, as if a weight pressed on her shoulders. I placed the tape recorder on the coffee table and pressed the record button. Inside, the cassette tape whirled to life. Audrey, thank you for calling me to investigate your problem. I want you to know I'll take your claim seriously and investigate them as such. Whatever the outcome may be, if the phenomenon you are experiencing is paranormal or natural, I'll seek to find the truth the best I can. Thank you. Please, start from the beginning. She sighed, and brushed some stray frazzled hair behind her ear with one hand. I could see she was at her wit's end. Her face bore deep wrinkles beyond her age, her eyes contained within deep purple sockets, and her nails chewed away to ragged edges. Whatever she was experiencing, paranormal or not, was certainly real to her. Okay, she began. I guess it all started when I was a baby. That far back? Yes. My first memories are of seeing him. Him? What I call the Grinning Man. She shuddered when she said it. The thing that's been haunting me my entire life. I can even remember him as a baby. It's burned into my memory. He dresses like someone from the 40s or 50s, with a tan trench coat and black fedora. I was laying in my crib when I first recall seeing him. He gripped the crib's bars while he peered down at me through them, looming over a little helpless me, like an ominous mountain. Just thinking of it turns my stomach. And he was grinning at you? Yes, like he always is. Have you ever heard people describe a psychopath's grin? Where their smile is there and looks friendly enough? But if you look closely, you can see their eyes hold nothing? I think I understand. His smile is like that. It's like he has reptilian eyes. Unfeeling, cold, predatory, evil. Must have had quite an impact on you, considering you remember it from that far back. Has he been cropping up your entire life? Yes. It's sporadic. Sometimes I'll go years without seeing him. Other times I'll see him multiple times a month. What's a typical encounter like? Well, he'll appear out of nowhere. Then he stands as still as a statue and watches me, with that sick grin of his plastered on his face. He could show up anywhere, at any time. Among the trees as I walk through the park. From a random house's window as I walk down the street. The shadows of my own home. When I get a glass of water in the middle of the night. 
Does this entity ever say or do anything? No. Always silent. Always unmoving. Just tracking me with his eyes. Interesting. Do you ever feel anything when you see this entity? Yes. An intense sense of dread. And a tightness in my chest. Almost like he's reaching out with imaginary brooding fingers to squeeze my heart. And sometimes, when I see him, something terrible happens soon after. You mean that a sighting of the Grinning Man is a precursor to a traumatic event? Yes. Not all the time, but enough that when I see him, my nerves will be shot, and I'll walk around with this dark cloud weighing on me as I wait for the worst to happen. Could you give me an example? Audrey sighed, and tears swelled at the corner of her eyes. She averted her gaze and looked out the window. If it's too difficult, you don't have to- No, it's okay. She reached for the tissue box on the coffee table, took a couple, sniffled, and dabbed her eyes. The worst incident was in 1993. I had been married for three years, and had just given birth to our first child. He was four months old at the time. I was back at work by then, and I was coming home very late one evening. The roads were dead. A bad storm had just passed through, and I still remember the long, colorful glows of the traffic lights and street lamps across the wet roads. I came to a stop at a red. I just happened to glance to my right. There he was, half covered in shadows. He stood on the pavement by the crosswalk, the walk signal glowing green as if he had meant to cross. That grin he had sunk my heart as if it had turned to stone. I don't know exactly how long I stayed there, locked in his gaze. But when my light turned green again, I got out of there as fast as I could. When I looked in the rear view, I saw a silhouette in the street, watching me as I fled. I knew I'd struggle to sleep that night. I was shaking and felt like throwing up. I had to take a Valium, and that helped. I plopped into bed and passed out more than fell asleep. I was awoken by my husband frantically shaking me in the morning. His face was pale. A look of sheer, terror-filled panic I had never seen before. Our son had passed away in the night. The death was ruled a Sid's case. I sat in silence, giving Audrey a moment as she let her emotions out. At the time, I wasn't sure what to think. Her story was unique, far from the standard ghostly apparitions others saw. I was intrigued. I did wonder if it was a mental condition. I had encountered a schizophrenic who had believed their hallucinations were a result of paranormal phenomena on a previous case, though their condition had been more apparent, even to me. If Audrey was ill, it was not obvious. Audrey, have you seen any medical professionals? Is it possible that your sightings could be hallucinations? Yes, I have. I had kept the grinning man a secret my entire life. After all, who would believe me? I even kept it from my husband. But after our son had died, I had to tell him. I don't know why, but I just did. He was obviously concerned for me, my mental health. He wanted me to see a therapist. I refused at first. We had a lot of fights about it, and eventually he forced me to go see someone. What did they say? Well, I was put through the ringer. Eventually I was diagnosed with psychosis. I was put on meds, went to therapy twice a week and none of it helped. He would still show up. Eventually, I quit the meds, quit the therapy. Waste of time and money as far as I was concerned. 
but my husband thought different. He didn't like that I had quit all of it, and our marriage kind of fell apart from there. But I was, still am, convinced what I was experiencing is real. That's why I came to you. I figured someone like you would at least take my story seriously. I nodded. I do. And there's another reason I sought you out. Please. Well, I've been seeing the Grinning Man a lot more lately. He's been appearing more frequently than ever before. How often? Every few nights for the past two or three months. He only shows up at night now. Usually outside my bedroom window. And I did see him in the hallway last week. I never used to sleep with my bedroom door closed. But I do now. I don't know if I can take it much longer. My nerves are shot. Dread suffocates my chest all the time. I think something terrible is going to happen soon. I'm scared of what he might do to me. But you can prove it, right? You can prove he's real. You can help me get rid of it, right? I'll try, Audrey. I'll try. After the interview, I tested her home for electromagnetic fields. Strong EMFs can often be responsible for hallucinations of apparitions, or that creepy feeling that elicits goosebumps on the back of your neck. It often causes people to believe they're experiencing a haunting. In reality, it's usually just poor electrical wiring or old and dirty wall sockets bleeding electricity into the environment. Those EMFs can mess with people's senses. Though Audrey's sightings of the Grinning Man were not tied to a particular location, I figured EMFs may be responsible for her latest string of sightings that occurred primarily in her bedroom. But after a sweep of the house, I detected nothing abnormal. I then set up a camera on a tripod in her bedroom. It sat beside the head of the bed and had a complete shot of her room, including the window on the opposite wall and the door on the right that led into the hallway, both places she had seen the grinning man previously. I showed her how to record and instructed her to do so when she went to bed. I also gave her a nightlight to plug into an outlet so the camera could see. Night vision and thermal imaging cameras were well out of my budget back then. I swung by her house the next two mornings to collect and review the tape. Those nights were uneventful. On the third night, I got a frenzied call from Audrey. The ringing jarred me awake. The clock on my nightstand read 2.08am. I trudged to the phone, and as soon as I answered, Audrey's frantic voice came over the line. He was here! She cried. He was here! He tried to hurt me! I arrived at Audrey's a little over half an hour later. She paced back and forth in the living room, a neglected cigarette burning in her hand, the ash tip growing long and pale as bone. She muttered one thing over and over. No escape! No escape! No escape! It took a minute to calm her down. At first, she looked right through me as if I weren't there, her eyes distant and fear-stricken, as she continued to mutter, can't escape, until the words burned in my ears. I eventually ushered her into the kitchen and sat her down. I found some cocoa in the cupboards and made her a warm cup. It seemed to help a little. Her trembling stopped. I'm going to watch the tape, I said. Do you want to watch it with me? She shook her head adamantly. She waited in the kitchen while I watched. She had a VCR player hooked up to a CRT television in her living room. I sat on the edge of the coffee table, rather than the sofa, for a closer view. I inserted the tape, and the TV came to life, with a view of Audrey's room bathed in dim orange from the nightlight, and the window at the far end shined with a pale glow from the moon. The footage wasn't great being comparatively rudimentary for what we have today. The picture quality was grainy, and sometimes wavered in the way those VCR tapes did, but it was enough to see what I needed to. 
I fast-forwarded the tape until the text on the bottom right corner read 1.30 a.m. I sat with a pen and notepad in hand, and I still have my notes from what I saw on that tape. 1.30 a.m. Audrey asleep in bed, nothing untoward. 1.35 a.m. Audrey becoming visibly restless, flipping and turning violently in her sleep. 1.38 a.m. Audrey settled. 1.40 a.m. Dark figure crossed window on opposite wall. 1.42 a.m. Dark figure crossed window again in opposite direction. 1.44 a.m. Dark figure standing in front of window. Figure looks like a person, possibly wearing a hat. Figure too dark to make out features. 1.46 a.m. Static intermittently breaking up picture. Figure still standing at window. 1.50 a.m. The figure disappeared. Did not walk or move away. Simply vanished. 1.51 a.m. Audrey becoming restless again. 1.52 a.m. Bedroom door opened. That was the last note I took. My heart was pounding in my ears by this point. A few seconds after the door had opened, seemingly by itself, the man appeared from the darkness in the hallway, like a demon emerging from the depths of hell. I dropped my notepad and gawked at the television screen. Even through the grainy footage and the worsening bursts of static, I could make out the grin plastered across the figure's face. The grinning man. The nightlight suddenly went out, and the screen went black. It took a few moments for the lens to adjust to the dimmer moonlight coming through the window. And when it did, the grinning man was a dark silhouette just inside the doorway. I stood and approached the television, bent over at the waist, face inches from the screen to get a closer look. The tape wavered badly, making everything unrecognizable. When the picture cleared, the grinning man had teleported from the doorway to the bedside, just in front of the camera. He peered down at Audrey. My heartbeat thumped steadily in my ears. The picture wavered again, for longer. When it steadied, the grinning man had his arms extended downward, toward Audrey. She was now kicking and thrashing in bed, the grinning man's hands appearing to be clasped around her throat. The blanket was flung from the bed suddenly, a big dark cloud moving across the screen. Audrey thrashed, and the grinning man held on. The moonlight glanced off his teeth, making that diabolical grin a glimmering silver blemish at the base of his darkened face. Like his grin, his eyes shined palely with manic glee. A prolonged burst of static. I let out a breath I didn't know I was holding. The picture came back. The nightlight was on, and Audrey sat upright in bed, grasping at her neck. The grinning man was gone. I felt something in the air then, heavy like humidity, a powerful feeling that pervaded the house, a feeling of anger. The VCR tape paused by itself, then began to rewind. The tape whined frantically inside the player with a high pitch. The picture on the screen sheared, then went black. Smoke seeped from the vents of the player and around the edges of the opening flap, I mashed the eject button, hoping to save the tape, but the crinkling noise that sounded like crumpling cellophane left me with little confidence. The flap turned back, and the tape flew out as if shot from a cannon. The mess of cracked casing and wadded tangled tape hit me in the chest and fell to the floor. The television flew off the cabinet suddenly, pushed from an unseen force, and landed before my feet with the screen shattering. Audrey came in from the kitchen alarmed. She glanced at the TV, laying busted on the floor, then at the tape next to it, and then at me. What happened? He's real, I said breathlessly. I saw it, on the tape, 
He's real. Perhaps it was foolish to believe simply leaving the home would have helped, but it was the only thing I could think to do. I took Audrey to a nearby motel and booked us into neighboring rooms. I sat on the edge of my bed, at a loss. I had completely underestimated what we were dealing with. Until watching that tape, I wasn't even sure the entity was real. But not only was it real, it was dangerous. I phoned a close acquaintance, one that wasn't so happy to be awoken at three in the morning, who worked for another paranormal investigation team. He was happy to help once I explained the seriousness of the situation. He gave me the number of a good medium who could help give a reading, perhaps to identify what we were dealing with. I was also hoping she might have known methods to banish the entity from Audrey's life, if it were at all possible. I decided to call the medium first thing in the morning, but it would be too late for her to do anything by then. I lay down on the bed, my thoughts swimming in a fuzzy haze of fatigue and the come-down off an adrenaline spike. I realized that, for the first time with true conviction, I had encountered something under the surface of the normal world, something sinister, hiding in those deep and dark, murky waters below. You can live your life pretending that world is not real. Many do. And sure, chances are you'll never be affected by it. But you should know, that world is real, and it's there, lurking in the darkest of shadows around us. With some difficulty, I eventually fell asleep. The short doze from three to dawn was restless. I had a nightmare I was drowning in black sludge, as dark as the starless night sky above me. My arms and legs struggled through the thick oily liquid, as I fought to keep my head above the surface. My breath cut short, and my chest squeezed tight. Panic flooded in through every pore on my body, as the presence of evil prickled my skin. And then... Darkness. I awoke to sunlight glowing around the edges of my grimy motel curtain. The bedsheets were a scrunched-up mess, and my blanket lay strewn over the floor. With a sick feeling creeping up in my gut, I realized how this scene closely mirrored what I saw in the aftermath of the attack on Audrey. I rushed out of my room to Audrey's next door. She didn't answer the first few knocks, so I knocked louder. No answer. I called her name and pounded on the door. Still no answer. I rushed to the motel's front desk, convincing them to let me into the room. When we entered, Audrey was in bed. Her pale face poked out from the blanket. Her lips were blue. Her eyes, vacant and lifeless, stared at nothing. My heart plummeted. She was dead. I dream of that morning often. The moment we walked into that godforsaken room to see Audrey drained of life. I'll never forget that. The case has stuck with me all these years. I've pored over the details many times. I relived my actions, and question if there was more I could have done. I try not to blame myself. I know it's not healthy, but I just can't lift the weight of guilt that still sits on my shoulders. Or perhaps it's my liver that takes the brunt. Fact is, as I see it, she came to me for help, and I did not do enough. I wish I could tell you I got revenge on this thing, that I tracked the entity down and vanquished it like a hero at the end of a Hollywood action movie. But life doesn't tend to work like that. Besides my experience with Audrey, and that close brush I had that night in the dingy motel room, I have yet to cross the path of the grinning man ever again. But that's the nature of this line of work. Things don't get wrapped up and topped off with a neatly tied bow. We deal with things that are on the edge. Things that straddle the line between the world we know 
and the one we don't. Things are hazy, transient, and often unknowable. Neat resolutions don't find their way to us easily. I can tell you that Audrey's death was eventually ruled a case of sudden arrhythmic death syndrome, or SADS. As you can probably guess, I have some doubts that that was all there was to it. I still called the medium. We met a couple of weeks after Audrey's passing. We went to the motel and booked the same room Audrey had died in. The worker at the desk was certainly curious as to why I insisted on that room, but I refused to say. The medium's face drained of color the second she stepped inside. She walked around the room in silence for ten minutes. She moved slowly, intently, closing her eyes and breathing deep as she tapped into a strange, ominous world. Can't say I envy her talents. Something incredibly powerful, she eventually said. It's not here now, but I can still feel its vestiges. How long ago did this happen? A little over two weeks. A grave expression crossed the medium's face. Yes. Very powerful. Do you know what the entity is? Not precisely, but I can say that its soul is black and twisted. That thing has a soul? All intelligent forces do. And what do you mean by black and twisted? I mean, the entity is a corrupted agent of death itself. I was speechless for a moment as the weight of her words robbed me of breath. A drip coming from the sink in the bathroom was the only thing to break the crushing silence. What can we do about it? I asked. The medium smiled wistfully, at my naivety I assume. I was young and inexperienced, and ready for a fight. She knew that. Then her expression grew dark, as she took one last look over the room. Not a thing, she said. I hope you enjoyed The Grinning Man, as written by SSA89 and performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 13, Kristen Mass. Up next, we've got a third tale for you. This one, courtesy of author Nathaniel Lewis, about another career-ending night. This one told from the perspective of, of all things, a coroner. Ooh. And I'll bet you thought you've seen everything. <laughs> Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's second sponsor, Euphoric. The innovative, patented, hemp oil-infused chewing gum that's got the entire CBD industry buzzing. Everybody's talking about CBD and its super benefits. And if you use CBD, or if you're curious about trying it, you'll want to check out Euphoric Hemp Oil-Infused Chewing Gum. It's an amazing innovation. Chew Euphoric Gum and experience all the benefits of full-spectrum hemp oil, rich in naturally occurring phytocannabinoids, including CBD. Phytocannabinoids support your body's natural ability to chill, focus, and move well without a high. Euphoric's absorption rate of 84% is about 50% better than edibles like gummies, tincture, or even capsules. And it's good for you. It's gluten-free, sugar-free, non-GMO, rich in omega-3 and omega-6, and it's certified vegan. It tastes great, and it's convenient. Just pop a piece of euphoric gum in your mouth and experience the powerful benefits. 
You only need to try Euphoric once to see what all the fuss is about. To prove it, you can now get your first month free. That's right, free. Just pay shipping. This is a limited time offer that's just being released nationwide. Just visit this website, chewthisgum.com, to claim your first month free today while supplies last. Again, that website is chewthisgum.com. Chewthisgum.com. Thanks so much for your time and for giving Euphoric a try this month. Now that we've assisted you in relaxing with the help of our friends at Euphoric, allow me to issue you a challenge. Let's see how calm you can be in the face of another scintillating story. In our third tale tonight, from author Nathaniel Lewis, as performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 27, John Rogers, we meet a coroner who discovers that not every examination of a corpse is so cut and dry. Without further ado, I present to you the last body I ever cut open. Craig Brockwell was found by his wife, dead, on their living room floor, a plastic garbage bag tied off around his neck, and an empty bottle of Xanax on the kitchen counter next to a suicide note. My initial external examination of the body revealed no indications of a physical altercation with another person. Skin deep, the evidence was consistent with suicide by pills and suffocation. I was prepared to judge it such when Detective David Franklin requested an autopsy. Just doesn't sit right with me, said David. I mean, this guy. He had it all. Pulling in millions, kid's a superstar on the ball court, wife's a knockout. Then he goes and offs himself? I frowned. Well, depression can befall anyone, David, I said. And... People can be quite adept at concealing it. Sure, Jim. Sure, I get that. I guess that's not even what I'm talking about. It's just... You weren't there at the scene. There was just... David looked around the room, though there was nobody else there. Something felt off, he said. That's all. What do you mean, off? Is there some other evidence that I'm not aware of? David sighed. Look, let's just say that you do this one for me. I'll owe you. Take you out for beers later for a start. I looked down at Mr. Brockwell's corpse. Autopsies were invasive and expensive, and generally I avoided them unless there was a good reason to perform one. That was up to my discretion. But I suppose that a detective's intuition was a good enough reason. It's not like David made a habit of requesting autopsies. Okay, I said. I'll do the autopsy. But David, I don't drink. At the time, it was true that I didn't drink. I made an incision along the body's chest and set down my scalpel. A look at the lungs would tell me whether or not suffocation had indeed been the cause of death. I began to peel back the skin and muscle. As I did, 
I looked in shock to see that there was nothing there. When I say that there was nothing there, I mean that it was totally black, like peering into a completely dark space devoid of light. There should have been a ribcage there. There wasn't. There was nothing. I dropped the flaps of skin that I was holding and stood up. I shook my head. No, I thought. That's ridiculous. I knew that I had a headlamp around somewhere, so I went looking for it. I pulled open a drawer, and that's when everything became silent. We grow accustomed to them, but we are surrounded constantly by sounds. The slight buzz of the electric lights above us, the hum of the boiler in the basement, the sound of our own breath, the rustle of our clothes as we move, the sound of a drawer opening. None of it was there. It was as though I had gone completely deaf. I don't know why exactly, but I had a sudden urge to look at the body on my examination table. I turned my head, but it turned far slower than I intended, as though I were losing control of my body, or time had slowed down, or the room had become thick with some invisible substance. The dead and naked body was just as I had left it, of course, with the incision along its chest and the skin there curled back slightly from where I'd begun to peel it. All at once a rush of sound returned to my ears and my movements resumed their typical speed. I shook my head once again and turned back to the drawer. I found the headlamp, strapped it to my head and went back to the body. I flipped on the light, opened the skin up again and gazed into utter darkness. There was nothing there. The darkness consumed the light from the headlamp. It seemed endless. I steadied myself and tore the skin back further. Instead of the ribcage and bits of tissue, there was only the nothingness. I tentatively stuck a finger into it. As soon as I did, the silence returned and everything slowed down again. My finger felt incredibly cold, like touching dry ice. I withdrew it as quickly as I could, which was not very quickly at all. It was like coming out of quicksand, but once I was out, the expected pace of reality fell back into place. I jumped back and picked up my scalpel. I made a deep slice along the right thigh and pulled up the skin. More nothingness. I repeated the procedure on the left thigh to the same result. My hands were shaking and my mind was in blank shock. My mind was as empty as the body in front of me. Nothing could explain this. I walked around to the head and made a cut around the circumference of the crown. I peeled the flesh away, and there was nothing. As I stared into it, I froze. I stood holding the severed scalp, staring into the nothingness, unable to do anything else. I don't know how long I was in that state, but the sound of David's voice snapped me out of it some time later. How's it going down here, Jim? I dropped the piece of dead flesh and hair that I'd been holding and turned to look at David. This is very bizarre. I've never seen anything like this. I, I can't explain it. And how's that? asked David. I pointed to the body. Just look, I said. David walked across the room and peered into the darkness. 
What the fuck? He whispered. I don't know, I said. I don't know. David started reaching inside the head. I wouldn't do that, I cautioned. He ignored me and kept reaching. Then his hand was inside the head. He froze suddenly, except for his eyelids, which opened wide in shock. David, I said, pull your hand out. Now! David's eyes got even wider. He was trying to say something, but his lips wouldn't open. It came out muffled, but I had no doubt that he was trying to say, Help. All at once, David jerked forward two feet so that he was now into the body up past his elbow. The look on his face grew more frantic and desperate. I grabbed onto his other arm and yanked, but it was no good. The body was stronger and was pulling him in, now up the bicep. I watched in pure horror as the head seemed to expand in size, as if it were growing larger so that it could suck in all of David. Instinct took over and I ran to my tray of tools. I grabbed my bone saw and switched it on as I made my way back to David. I applied the saw to his shoulder, which was now mere inches away from the terrible maw of nothingness. I drove the saw in furiously, blood splattering on my face, the muffled would-be screams of David trying to assert themselves over the whir of the saw. At last, I cut through the bone and David fell back on me so that I hit the ground with him on top of me. I could see the last of his severed arm disappear into the nothingness. Now that his lips would open again, David was wailing in agony. I rolled out from under him and went to work on cauterizing the wound, praying that he wouldn't die. I paused long enough to dial 911 and explain the need for help over the speakerphone function as I performed the surgery. I sat by the hospital bed until David regained consciousness. He looked at me with terrified eyes and grabbed my wrist with his remaining hand, his fingernails digging into me. I saw it, said David. I still see it. Nothing. That's what I am, and what you are. Everything is nothing. I broke free of his grip. That's absurd, I said. I... Don't know how to explain that body, but I know that I am not nothing. David started laughing then. I left him at the hospital, went home, and had my first drink in two years. I knew that it was a horrible mistake, but I did it anyway. To wash away the horror. When I was drunk enough, I resolved to return to the morgue, determined to burn Craig Brockwell's body. I got in my car like a monster and drove weaving across the road. When I arrived, I flung the door open, my mind and body overtaken by the alcohol. I looked into the room, and even through my drunken haze, it registered that something was very, very wrong. The body was gone. Craig Brockwell's attempted autopsy happened ten years ago. For a year afterwards, I drank. I lost my job, refusing to return back to work. I burned through my savings, and by the end of the year, I had hit rock bottom, as it's called. That was shortly after Detective David Franklin committed suicide. Now, I have my life back together. I still have nightmares, but I have for the most part put the incident behind me. I have a loving family and a new career. I cannot express how grateful I am for this new life. But yesterday, I saw something. 
I left my office at 5pm, as usual, and walked across the parking lot to my car. I got in, started it up, and checked my rearview mirror. Standing there was a man. It was, unmistakably, David Franklin. I turned my head and looked out the back window. He was still there. He opened his mouth, and there inside was endless darkness. The world grew silent, and I watched, unable to move, as he lifted his only arm and pointed a finger at me. Then he turned and walked away. I hope you enjoyed The Last Body I Ever Cut Open, as written by Nathaniel Lewis and performed by Evil Idol 2019, contestant number 27, John Rogers. Up next, we've got a fourth and final tale for you about what happens when the hunters become the hunted. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's third sponsor, Pretty Litter. <sighs> It's winter, and we all know what that means. Hiding out during the long, cold months. And for most of us, that means a whole lot of downtime at home. And if you're a cat owner like me, you might be apprehensive about being within nose shot of a litter box for hours on end. Especially when it's due for a refresh. But I've got nothing to worry about now, and neither will you, thanks to Pretty Litter. With Pretty Litter, I have odorless litter delivered right to my door. The director of this show, Craig, and I, we both have cats. And we've both enjoyed the companionship of furry feline friends since we were kids. But we also both know how much of a hassle it can be to keep a home clean and tidy with cats around. But Craig and I can both agree... Pretty Litter changes everything about one of the worst parts of the job, cleaning up after our lovable fur balls. If you've ever owned cats and had the misfortune of having the litter get oversaturated and don't have time to run to the store at the last minute to get some fresh litter after finding out you're out, you'll know how unbearable the smell can get and how heavy traditional cat litter is. If you didn't have back problems before having a cat, you just might afterwards, if you're using old-fashioned clay litter. Craig and I would have to agree. The best part about Pretty Litter, though the delivery is great, is the odor control and the ease of cleanup, all without the back-breaking weight of traditional litter. Pretty Litter looks cool, keeps your home smelling great, and discourages waste. And it'll save you a trip to the store and the chiropractor. <laughs> Pretty Litter is kitty litter reinvented. Unlike traditional litter, Pretty Litter's super light crystals trap odor and release moisture, resulting in dry, low-maintenance litter that doesn't smell. And Pretty Litter is virtually dust-free because it's manufactured with a specialized de-dusting process. Less dust and no fuss. Pretty Litter also spares my sanity and storage space. It's shipped in a small, lightweight bag that lasts an entire month. No more bulky containers or frequent trips to the store. 
who wants to run to the store and lug home twenty to forty pound buckets of clay and have to find some place to store several canisters of it because it takes so much of it to keep a litter box functional. Not me. And definitely not in the winter, when roads are often terrible and it gets dark at two in the afternoon. So save yourself the mileage, the hassle, and the unfortunate smell of oversaturated traditional litter and stock up on pretty litter. Now, I've said a lot of great things about what makes pretty litter the obvious choice over other types of litter. But above all else, here's why pretty litter is a pet parent's hero. It's a health indicator. You heard me right. Pretty litter monitors my cat's health by changing colors when it detects potential underlying issues. You won't find that kind of innovation in conventional litter. The sad truth is, you can't change the weather or do much about your cat's, shall we say, natural odor. (laughs) But you can change your kitty litter. Make the switch, like I did today. Go to prettylitter.com and use promo code CTFDN for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code CTFDN. Be sure to use that code to let them know that we sent you. And remember, supporting our sponsors helps support this show. And your support means a lot to us. For the cat owners in our audience today, thanks so much for giving Pretty Litter a try today. And for our dog owners, well, just be glad the pet doesn't poop in your house. (laughs) Now that we've shared the secret to a happy cat, allow me to give the horror lover in you something to smile about, too, with one final chilling tale. In our fourth and final story tonight, written by author Max Minton and performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 35, Kyle Stroud, a young man and his father go hunting, but what they discover in the deep woods has no intention of eating a bullet. It would rather have a bite of them. Without further ado, I present to you Skinwalker. My father told me a story once. I'll never forget it for a few reasons. I think it's the first story he ever told me as a child. It's also the story of how my grandfather died. But honestly, that isn't the reason. You hear stories on TV or sometimes you overhear something in a public place. People talk about ghosts and aliens, and you think to yourself, that ain't real. They're making it up. Or they're mistaken. Or they're crazy. Or something like that. You just can't believe it. Until something happens. Something that brings it all together. Connects the dots in a way you didn't think of before. Maybe it happens to you. Maybe you hear the same story again and again happening to different people. It doesn't take long for the world to become a lot bigger than you thought it was. As I said, this is a story my father told me, but I never believed it, even though he swore up and down it was true. It wasn't until I started clicking around the internet I started to believe. 
I started to hear other stories just like the one my father told me. It didn't take me long to believe in the rake. That's not what my father called it, of course. He's never used the internet in his life. He wouldn't know what the consensus had taken to naming it. When he chose to call it something other than it, or that thing, he called it Skinwalker. After an old Cherokee tale his grandfather told him, but I'll tell you the story the way he told it to me. We were out hunting one night, he'd tell me. Coyotes. We'd kill them for 50 bucks a skin. They lived on a dairy farm in Ohio. They'd kill calves sometimes. We'd do it every night, because we needed the money. Sometimes, while we were out, we'd come up on a deer and kill it. Our landlord didn't mind and it could feed our family for a few nights and save us some money. Anyway, we were done making our rounds and heading home, walking, because we didn't have a car or some four-wheeler back then. We'd cut through the woods. That's when we came up on it. Blood everywhere. Splattered on the trees and the grass, in the creek everywhere. At first, we figured it was a pack of coyotes. We'd seen it sometimes. They can't scavenge and start hunting deer or cattle. The worst was when they bred with feral dogs. But this wasn't like that. See, when a pack of dogs or wolves or coyotes attack something, they do it right. They pick off one that's weak or sick or old or just small. They'll hunt it, draw it into a corner, someplace it can't get out of, and they'll run it right to the biggest one, the Alpha. And that deer will never see that Alpha. It might hear it, but it won't see it. It'll just notice that its throat is gone, and then it'll drop dead. It's quick, it's clean. That wasn't what happened here. Something had run up on a den of deer. Coyotes won't attack a den, wolves neither, because they'd get too much of a fight. There were three, I think. Three bodies, just torn apart. You'd see a head here, a leg here, a torso there. Predators don't do that. They don't leave behind scraps. What had done this hadn't done it for food. It had done it for fun. But we didn't know that. We saw a bunch of carcasses and we think it's something we gotta take care of. I remember my dad telling me to go home. He thought it was a pack of feral dogs. But I wasn't leaving him. And I damn sure wasn't walking through two miles of woods alone. Nothing but a twenty-two and a pocket knife. He was only 13 at the time, so a 22 rifle was about the only gun he could reliably use. Dad had the shotgun, and I wasn't going anywhere without it. It took me a while to convince him, but finally we began tracking whatever did that. It wasn't hard, either. We just followed the blood. Either that thing bled a deer before it got away, or it dragged one for a mile... I don't know. I know that I'd never seen my dad scared before that night. 
we started hearing noises. I've been in a lot of woods in my life. I've been all over the world and ain't never heard noises like I heard that night. I heard things. Screaming. Heard deer and fox and rabbits and raccoons and birds just scared. Keep in mind, this is maybe 12 or 1 o'clock. Except the fox and some birds, nothing was supposed to even be awake. But they weren't just awake, they were moving. I saw flocks of birds that night fly straight into trees just trying to get out of there. We came up on a pack of coyotes. Nearly shot a couple, thinking it was what we were looking for. But then we saw they were running toward us. They ran right past us, didn't even notice. Then some deer did the same. Then some rabbits, squirrels, foxes, even a couple wild hogs. These things were supposed to be eating each other, and the only thing they cared about was getting out of there. <sighs> we should have put it together. That maybe whatever we were tracking, it wasn't something we were supposed to see. And it wasn't something we could kill. I don't know why we didn't just go home. I guess we were curious. I think that was my dad's nature. To go toward trouble. To fight. And knowing what I knew about what my father did during the war, my nature was to stay close to him. We finally get out into an open valley. It was normally a sore field, but it wasn't in season, so it was just flat dirt. We saw the tracks then. A lot of animals flee in the forest, passed over the land. But where that deer blood was, nothing had taken a single step. Like they were leaving it for us to find. The tracks were shallow. Whatever it was couldn't have weighed more than a hundred pounds. But that didn't mean much. A bobcat weighing 40 pounds wet nearly tore out my damn throat once. All that means is that it's quick and hard to hit. So we follow the tracks. And it doesn't take us long to find out where it is. There's this old schoolhouse that sits on the top of the hill. Half of it had been ripped out by a tornado. But nobody lived there. Not for a long time. We caught homeless people in there sometimes or... Druggies looking for a safe place to shoot up. We figured maybe that was it. Maybe it was some sick kid riding a high. But we didn't think that for long. We get within 50 yards and we hear this noise. A screeching kind of sound. It was sort of made up of two different sounds. One was a high-pitched screech. Another was a low-pitched growl. It was making both at the same time. We get within 20 yards and we hear this sound. I can remember that it sounded like paper being torn apart while someone was swinging water in a bucket back and forth. Dad looks at me, kneels down, and whispers, I gotta stay behind him because we're about to corner him. Any animal will fight when it's cornered especially when it's a predator. But we can tell by the tracks that it's just one. He tells me it's probably a single feral dog, probably rabid. The plan is to sneak up on it while it's eaten, shoot it, 
and then keep shooting it till it don't move no more, then slit its throat. And if it gets to dad, it's my job to shoot it or stab it to get it off him. So he walks up, and I'm right behind him, just a tad to his side, so I can see what it is. I wish to this day I hadn't. It was leaning over a carcass, tears off its flesh and throws what it doesn't nibble at aside. There's blood all over the brick, glistening in the moonlight. It's pale white, human-looking, but not quite human. It had arms and legs like a human, but it sat like a monkey, hunched over, and its hands weren't normal. It had long fingers with claws at the end. So we see that, and my dad hesitates. He wasn't about to fire on a person, so he clears his throat to try to get it to turn around. I swear to God, all the noise just ceased. I never heard true silence before that, not after it. But for two seconds, nothing, nothing made any noise which made it all the louder when it turned around and made this shrill cry and jumped on Dad. He got a shot off. I, I think he missed. If he hit the thing, it didn't mind. But it was on him. Tears parts of him off. I start shooting it with the twenty-two point blank, but it barely bled the thing. I got off five rounds, and then I started hitting it with the gun butt. But it wasn't budging it didn't even register that I was there. It's clawing at my dad, taking off bits of his flesh. It starts on his torso, ripping off the skin. Then it moves up. It tore off his throat. It tore off his nose, his eyes. It, it scalped him. Then it started digging in. Ripped off the bottom half of his jaw. The little bones in that tube in your neck. And then his ribs... Now, I, I don't exactly remember what happened, but somehow my dad's knife ends up in this thing's shoulder, and my dad ends up on my back. I'm running, and by God, I'm running faster than I'd ever run before or after, and it's following me. I end up back in the woods opposite the ones we've been in. I'm heading towards my landlord's house because it's, it's about half a mile away. I can hear this thing screeching and moaning. I hear these tree branches crack and get thrown around. It sounds like someone's taking an axe to every single tree I pass. It's cracking so loud and often. But I just ain't looking back. Finally, I trip into gravel. I look up and there's my landlord and a bunch of his buddies drinking around a campfire. I scream and cry and they come over. I'm telling them to call an ambulance. And he looks at me and I'll never forget what he said. What is that on your back? He asked me. Just as he said it, he saw one of those god-awful flannel shirts my dad wore everywhere. It was what was left of my dad. Most of his head, his torso, but nothing after the waste. Suddenly, we hear it, screeching. He grabs me. My dad gets thrown on the ground. 
I'm fighting him crying because I, I think we can still save him somehow, but my dad had been gone before I ever picked him up. He has to pick me up and throw me inside before I come with him. He and his buddies were all inside and they're locking doors and getting guns. The landlord's asking me what happened, what happened, but I just, I don't know what to tell him. He pieced enough of it all together to understand that there was something dangerous out there. All the lights in the house were on and someone calls the cops. They'll be there, but in 15 minutes. We look outside and see it walk in front of the fire they'd made. Don't know what it is, one of them says. It looks like an ape. Suddenly something goes through the window. We shoot at it, but it ain't the thing. It's my landlord's dog. Just the body, though, not his head or his legs. We start pushing things in front of the doors and windows. Then we hear something in the garage. I remember one of his friends saying that the doors were open. We hear metal and glass just getting ripped apart. We put a couch and a TV in front of the door to the garage. It banged around some more, but then it got quiet. Not silent like it was before. We could we could hear it move around some. And the guys were talking, making sure the guns were ready. Someone hands me a pistol. No sooner did I cock the hammer back did we hear something shatter upstairs. Then we heard it screech again. Except now it was louder. And it didn't echo and fade out. Because it was inside. We all rushed to the one door leading upstairs, and we got to it just as that thing did. It opened it just a bit and four or five men just slammed into it. It got its hand through. Someone with a shotgun took care of that, put the barrel right up to its wrist and pulled the trigger, cut its hand off, clean. That only pissed it off, though. It started pushing on that door, clawing. We were on one side pushing as best we could and it was on the other doing the same that wood just wasn't gonna hold so someone tells us to keep our heads down suddenly the top half of the door is just gone my ears are ringing and there are splinters everywhere two or three of them just unloaded on the top of that door I don't really know where it went after that police got there. I was still glued to that door. What was left of it? The sun was up before they got me off it. They put me in a hospital for a while. A lot of people talked to me, but I didn't talk back. Not for a long, long time. When I got back home, I, I got a job for the landlord, working on the farm. We didn't talk much. Not about the thing, but... I signed up for the army when I was 19, and he sat me down to drink some scotch as a send-off. I asked him right away what the police told him. The story they went with was a wild animal, probably a wolf or maybe a bear that had migrated north. I asked him how they could say that when they had the hand. He looks at me stunned. He tells me that hand never made it back to the station. The cop who had it in his car wrecked 
drove into a tree, died on impact. The hand was never found, probably taken away by an animal. The cops, when they would acknowledge the hand existed at all, said it was simply the paw of a bear that looked like a human hand. I never talked to the landlord again. He went missing when I was in basic, never found him. They said he owed some people some money and just ran away. But I don't think it's that simple. I never went back to those woods. I wouldn't, even if I had the whole goddamn U.S. Army at my back. But that was a lie. When my mother died, I don't think my father felt he had anything left, and that he might as well settle old scores. He went to those woods. He never came back. The FBI was called, did a show for everyone involved. But I knew they weren't really looking. I had to get one drunk and slip him a few fifties before he finally told me that they get a few calls about those woods every year, about someone up and vanishing. But that was all he wanted to tell me. Before he got up and left with the rest of his team, he wrote, The Rake, onto a napkin. I didn't know what it meant until I searched for it on the internet. Honestly, I would have rather not known. I hope you enjoyed Skinwalker, as written by Max Minton and performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 35, Kyle Stroud. Don't forget, all of tonight's performances were featured in this year's 2019 Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition, hosted on our official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, now and running the next several months. If you enjoyed the performances tonight, visit our YouTube channel and vote on theirs and the other entries in the competition. Again, you can find CTFDN and the Evil Idol competition on YouTube. Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine, or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation bar to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all of the performances thus far. We, and the candidates, appreciate your support. If you enjoyed what you heard tonight, we'd also like to remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of your content ad-free. Finally, thanks again to today's sponsors, Lightstream, Euphoric, and Pretty Litter for their support of this show. Don't forget, just for my listeners, apply now to get an additional interest rate discount. And the only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash chilling. That's lightstream.com slash chilling for an additional discount. L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com 
slash chilling. Subject to credit approval. Rates include 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash chilling for more information. Also, you can get your first month of euphoric CBD-infused gum free. That's right, free. Just pay shipping. This is a limited-time offer that's just being released nationwide. Just visit this website, chewthisgum.com, to claim your first month free today while supplies last. Again, that website is chewthisgum.com. Chewthisgum.com. And finally, as a reminder, you can make the switch to Pretty Litter today and get 20% off your first order. Just visit prettylitter.com and use promo code CTFDN for 20% off your first order. Once again, that's prettylitter.com, promo code CTFDN. Thanks again for giving our sponsors a try this month and for your support of this show. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and it's been a pleasure as always. I'm so glad you were able to join us tonight. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn about more of our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Otis Jack. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respected authors, Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. If you're looking for some fresh tales while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, Otis Jiry's Horror Storytime, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Or search for my podcast, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, where I perform four brand new tales every episode. Got a scary tale of your own you'd like to perform? We take submissions. Email us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tone considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook, to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well. 
to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing. Leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.